Blog Talk Radio. From the Carolinas to the world via the World Wide Web, this is Redeeming Truth Radio, and this is your host for the next 30 minutes as we seek to take an expedition for truth, yours truly, Pastor Brian Chilton. And we thank you for joining us today on our podcast. Hope you're doing well. If you would like to call in, our number is 323-784-9617. But, of course, if you want to do so, you'll need to call in during the live show, uh, which is 12 noon uh, on Mondays, uh, 12 noon Eastern Time on Mondays, and that's 9 a.m. for our friends on the Pacific Coast. So, again, hope you're doing well wherever you may be, and uh, hope you're getting ready for Christmas. I tell you, it's hard to believe that uh, Christmas is already here. Uh, this is uh, December 14th when we're airing this podcast, so we're just uh, about a week and a half away uh, from Christmas, and again, it's just hard to believe. 2015, in some ways, has uh, been a very difficult year. Uh, there have been a lot of things that have taken place that have uh, made this uh, year difficult in some ways. Uh, um And there are some really good things that's happened in 2015. Here in about a week, actually uh, this Friday, uh, I'll try to have all my assignments turned in. And so I will officially uh, graduate from Liberty University School of Divinity. And it's an honor to be one of the um, members of the first class of the actual School of Divinity. Uh, This was uh, formerly known as Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary, and um, now they uh, transferred or transitioned uh, the name to Liberty University School of Divinity. And so it's just an honor to be part of the first graduating class of the School of Divinity. So uh, that's that's a great honor and uh, very thankful and grateful uh, to the Lord especially for helping me get through this. I've got another assignment, so I'm not quite finished yet. I've got another big paper to write and a test to take and some a few other little odds and ends to do. And, and um, so, But I'm almost there. The end is in sight. There's the, the light is growing increasingly brilliant, 
at the end of that tunnel. So uh, again, I'm thankful and grateful to that. I do want to let you know about our uh, my website uh, called Bellator Christie, and this can be found at uh, http colon uh, well, just may as well say forget about that part, but just say Pastor Brian Chilton dot wordpress dot com. Again, that's Pastor Brian Chilton dot wordpress dot com, and the name of the site is Bellator Christie. Speaking of that. Uh, seeing as how the uh, my seminary uh, t- tenure is is coming to an end, at least for the master's aspect, hopefully soon I will um, be uh, engaging in a doctoral program. But uh, and, until that time, um, finishing up my master's degree is going to give me a lot more time to do uh, to spend in several different areas. And one thing that I would like to do is uh become more frequent in the number of articles that I post each week. So the plan is to perhaps have smaller articles but posting more frequently. And so uh this will be something it won't come immediately but will probably come um especially in 2016. So this is something that you can anticipate if you are following or you subscribe to uh, the website at Bellator Christie, which I highly encourage you to do so. Uh, there are over 1,600 people who have subscribed to the website and uh, hope hope to get 1,600 more. But uh, we do encourage you. If you what, what happens is when you subscribe is every time that there's an article published at Bellator Christie, you will receive an email in your inbox uh, with the complete article that's on there. So that's a way that you can uh, keep up with the things going on at Bellator Christie. So so go there, subscribe, check out some of the articles, and, and most of all, help us get the word out. Tell someone about the site and about this podcast here at Redeeming Truth Radio. Before I get into the main topic today, I want to talk about uh, something very interesting that um, Tom Rainer just uh, posted an, a piece called 16 Trends in American Churches in 2016, uh, Trends 1 through 8, and of course the second half of this will be coming tomorrow. But um, he lists eight trends, and and first of all he mentions church security as the fastest growing ministry. And this obviously comes uh, in lieu of the fact that there are increased uh, shootings that are going on, shootings in churches, sex abuse of children mandate this unfortunate trend. He goes on to say, no church can afford to be without serious security measures, policies, and equipment. It will evolve into a major church ministry. Now let me just say, uh, that was number one on his list, but let me just say, Let me go ahead and read first before I get into what I'm going to say. Uh, The second one is a decrease in worship center size and capacity. Third is an increase in successfully revitalized churches. Fourth is a rapid growth of coaching ministries for pastors and church staff. Number five, uh, increase in the numbers of churches in, in gentrified communities. This means thousands of older urban communities are becoming revitalized. Uh, Six, uh, increased emphasis on practical ministry training. Number seven, increased emphasis on groups in churches. And then eight, fewer segregated churches. And let me say, that is something that I highly support. 
we need to have more multi-ethnic churches. And let me tell you, if you have a problem with someone of a different color, you better get your heart right, because when you get to heaven, there's going to be all kinds of nationalities there. Racism is inconsistent with Christianity. Period. It is. It, you know, it's it's inconsistent with Christianity, and we have to realize that. So I, I think that there is a demand, a, a, a need, a necessity for multi-ethnic churches. Case in point, look at Derwin Gray Transformational Church down in South Carolina, the, one of the, the second fastest growing church in America today. Um, I heard Derwin Gray, fantastic speaker, even had a chance to speak with him on social media. Just a great man of God, former uh, linebacker for the Carolina Panthers and Indianapolis Colts. Uh, he's now a pastor, doing a great work there. Highly support that. But let me go back to the first one, talking about church security. Let me just say, as a student of liberty, it has um, bothered me quite greatly that there are many people jumping on this bandwagon against Jerry Falwell Jr., and and there's a great hypocrisy in what's going on. There was an article posted on Christianity Today, and, and the article itself wasn't as problematic as some of the commenters who left replies to to the article. And what you have is you have people who who are condemning Falwell in on on the on the one hand condemning him for allowing his students and staff to carry arms to defend themselves in a case of an attack, while on the other hand, speaking out of the other side of their mouth, almost these Christians now are claiming that they hope that something happens at liberty because of that. Really? So on the one hand, they're condemning Falwell's statements, while on the other hand, wishing ill will and harm against the students at Liberty University. Yeah, it's getting to the point, folks, that this, this social cultural war has now entered the church. And you have some people who are you know I'm almost speechless. You have some people who are promoting this agenda who who claim that if you don't hold everything that they hold that they adhere to, then you're not a Christian and and you can't uh, be part of the body of Christ. Listen. The very fact as Tom Rainer states that church security is becoming an, a major issue demonstrates the importance of the Christian to be able to defend him or herself. I got in a conversation with a gentleman this past week online um, about this very issue, and he takes and adheres to an extreme pacifistic um type of ideology where you can't defend yourself, you can't defend your family, you can't bear arms or do anything. And by the way, and, and I plan on writing more about this on the on the uh, on at Bellator Christie. I, I do believe that there that there are good biblical reasons for a person to be able to defend oneself. This doesn't mean that one takes up arms. This doesn't mean I mean um, takes up arms to go to war or anything like that or to do harm but simply as a means of defending himself or herself, and especially his family. 
Paul says that a person that takes care that, that does not take care of the members of his own home is worse than an infidel. That's what Paul says. And I think the uh, protection that is afforded to one's family is part of that caretaking responsibility. And so, uh, you know, it's it's a bizarre time we live in anymore. It really is. It's a very bizarre time. But, uh, you know, I, I think, and I even asked this individual, I asked him, I said, uh, what would you do if if someone came in and was threatening your family? Well, he, he never... He never gave a response to that. Um, he jumped off on something else. On, on Luke chapter 22, where Jesus says, take a sword, he takes a very symbolic view of that. There are reasons why I think that is a literal statement. I don't have time to get into it today, but uh, we may handle this on a future podcast. But anyhow, it's it's a bizarre time. And so, Christian, uh, it, it's important that you uh, know what you believe, know why you believe it, and um, and even the call of First Peter three fifteen, defending the faith, demonstrates, I think, in some means, to some degree, the importance of defense uh, for oneself and one's family. So anyhow, it's as I mentioned before, it's a bizarre time we live in. It's getting more and more bizarre as time goes on. And uh, I'd love to say that this is uh, outside, just outside the church. But man alive, I'm telling you, it's uh, it's inside the church just as every bit as much as it is outside the church. So there's definitely a call to all Christian leaders and um, Christians themselves to uh, gird up your loins. Um, the devil is on a rampage, so... Uh, obviously want to do that. Oh, by the way, let me just say one more thing before we jump into the uh, main topic today. Be much in prayer for Melissa Pelu. Uh, we've had De- her husband Devin on the show before. I've had the opportunity of being on their show once before, Theology Matters with the Pelus. Uh, Melissa is in a hospital, and uh, she's suffering from some type of rare neurological disease uh, that uh, affects the spinal column. Be much in prayer for this family. Uh, Devin, he had H1N1 that uh, caused him to go on disability, and uh, she's she's having a tough time as well. They have a beautiful little girl together. So if you would remember the Pelu family in your thoughts and prayers, especially this Christmas season. All right, uh, today we want to ask the question, what can we know historically by about Jesus of Nazareth? Are there certain things that we can know about Jesus of Nazareth uh, using historical methodology? And, uh, and in fact, we can know quite a bit. Uh, when it comes to Christmas, well, when it comes to any Christian holiday... The skeptics come out of the woodwork and they say, well, how do you know this happened? Or how do you know that happened? And and the Christian can find himself or, himself or herself in a position where they, um, you know, they, they lose the spirit of the holidays uh, because they be, begin to question, they begin to doubt. And, and, the, and it's especially at Christmas time, as there's a little more ambiguity in certain aspects than there is necessarily at Easter, uh, someone asked the, may ask the question, well, how can we know that these certain things took place as the Bible records them to be? And so, first of all, it's important to note 
that uh, the Gospels uh, are listed as what is called bioi, bioi, uh, which is a term representing or meaning indicating that they are ancient biographies. Now, Craig Keener is is noted as saying that the only difference between a biography and a history is that a biography is more limited in scope. A biography is just focused upon one person or maybe a group of people, whereas a history is um, covering the whole span of a nation or a whole entire group of people, whereas a biography is more concerned uh, is it, smaller in scope. It, it's more concerned with one individual, uh, or maybe uh, two or three individuals, a handful of individuals, maybe a movement. Whereas a history is going to talk about everything that's going on. Okay, so so while and with ancient biographies, there were some differences. Now let me say that uh, there were some ancient biographer biographies who took great liberties. But I don't buy into the uh, case that the Gospels took great liberties with um, with with their documentation. Now that's not to say that they may not have rearranged material uh, to focus in on a certain point. John, I think, uh, definitely did this. I think he moved things around to emphasize a certain uh, miracle of Jesus or emphasize a particular teaching of Jesus. That doesn't mean that it didn't happen. I mean, they did happen. They took great pains to uh, make sure that what they reported did happen. But they just took the information. For instance, if all of us do this, if you think about it, uh, we tell the stories that really matter. I have a handful of stories about my grandfather who lived into his uh, mid-80s. And, um, you know, I didn't know him when he was a young man, so everything I report came later in his life. And I have, even despite all the events that took place in my grandpa's life, I have a handful of stories that I tell people about my grandpa. These are highlighted stories that that mean a lot to me. That uh, show, I think, the character of my grandpa uh, and and different things like that. So the the ancient biographies did the same thing. They record and report history. Okay, uh, they record and report history, but they're part of this ancient biography uh, genre. And so that they they didn't necessarily focus on the early life of Jesus. They focused on the latter, uh, especially the ministry, the three and a half year ministry of Jesus. Okay, so we got to ask a few questions as it pertains to history. First of all, is history knowable? Skeptics will often claim that we cannot know anything about history because we cannot know that the person recording a particular event is telling the truth. We can't know that the historian is telling the truth. The historian may have an agenda. They may have something they're trying to show or trying to prove. How do we know that they're telling the truth? Okay, This mentality is termed historical subjectivism, which is defined by Norman Geisler as the argument that the substance of history, unlike that studied by empirical science is not directly observable. Well, there's a problem with that already because science and history are merged together. The only way that you can know certain things of scientific um, reliability is because of past studies that have been done. But if you don't think that you can know anything 
in the past, then how are you going to know how to observe things in the present? Okay? Science itself is built upon the history of science, the history of documentation, the history of testing, and so on and so forth. Okay? So... In stark contrast to this historical subjectivism, there's this historical realism which says that history is knowable. Okay, and and let me just say that historical subjectivism collapses upon itself; it implodes because if if you can't know anything that anybody reports, then you can't even know what you yourself report of your early life, or you can't especially know what your parents are telling you is true if they tell you certain things about when you were a baby, uh, or something about ancestors that uh, you didn't know, but you may have uh, inherited certain genes from those ancestors. Ancestors, um, and so you can't know that that's truth. You can't know anything is true. You can't even know what was true 30 minutes ago when you first started listening to the podcast. You can't know that. It collapses upon itself if you take it to its conclusion. Okay, so historical realism is, is the way to go. Okay, um, again... Historical subjectivism, if that's true, then we can't know that George Washington was really the first president of the United States or if King Henry VIII actually initiated the English Reformation. We can't know any of that. We can't know anything of history. Okay, And, and when you hear people like these Jesus mythicists, people who are claiming that Jesus really didn't exist... They are adhering to this historical subjectivism, okay? And in reality, the arguments collapse upon themselves if you take it to its full conclusion, all right? The historical realist believes that history is knowable, but how does a historian know whether an event is historical or not? How is an event or a person deemed historical? Well, history in its in and by its nature is unobservable, which means you have to depend upon uh, manuscripts, you have to depend upon archaeological evidences, you have to depend on things to tell you or to confirm or reject a certain premise or a certain hypothesis. And, and truthfully, there are individuals who throughout history have uh, written things that are absolutely untrue, okay? Uh, so you have to understand that it's impossible to have 100% certainty on any event in history. You, you can't even have 100% certainty that you were born in the hospital where your uh, birth certificate says that you were. You say, well, no, Brian, isn't there good evidence that I was born where my birth certificate said I was? Well, you have manuscript evidence, but how do you know that it's true? You see, there's a point in time where skepticism needs to be skeptical of its own skepticism. Okay? We can't know anything with 100% certainty. So what the historian does is he or she will gauge an event by its probability. What is the probability that this manuscript is telling me the truth about this particular event? Okay, so historians 
gauge the probability of what is written about a person and what is written about an event. And they use several different tools. Uh, for instance, there's what's called the multiple independent sources. That is, several voices addressing the same event and or person. If you have several people uh, independent of one another telling you something, then you can then you have a lot more weight to believe that that thing or that person uh, really happened or really existed. Enemy attestation is uh, one thing that the historian uses. Uh, this is the voice of the enemy of the person of history being studied. You know, one can claim bias if uh, someone uh, listens to an argument about a certain person or about a certain event who had uh, a bias, a preconceived notion about that person or event. But it's a whole lot more difficult to um, overthrow such a hypothesis if an enemy is telling you the same thing. Because obviously the enemy doesn't have the same bias that a supporter would. Okay? So... If an enemy is telling you something happened and a supporter of that person is telling you that something happened, then you can rest assured that that thing happened. There's also what's called embarrassing admonitions. The embarrassing admonitions are statements that are given in a history and or biography that would bring embarrassment to the writer or to the movement being promoted or to even to the person being uh, supported, okay? So there's also eyewitness testimony. Uh, this is the account of those who witnessed the event and or person being studied. Early testimony uh, refers to the time that the biography and or history uh, is written as compared to the event and the person being addressed. In other words, with Jesus, when you have something early in the first century that's going to be of more value and more weight than something written in the 300s, 400s, and 500s about Jesus. Same thing with George Washington. If you have something written about George Washington, the first president of the United States of America, if you have something written about him in the 1700s, that holds more weight than something written in 2015. All right, so uh, early testimony. Arguments to the ex best explanation. This refers to whether a hypothesis pertaining to an event of history holds the best explanation or whether alternatives do. And uh, Michael Lacona adds that this uh, includes explanatory scope, explanatory power, plausibility in what's being uh, addressed, less ad hoc, and illumination. And uh, we don't have time to get into all of those. That may be something that we will uh, address on a later podcast. But anyhow, there's also arguments from statistical inference. This is the practice of weighing the possibility that a certain person, fact, or event is more probable existing or occurring than not. And so what you have is you have a scale. Uh, you have something saying like uh, this thing certainly didn't happen or most likely didn't happen, uh, probably ha happened, most likely happened, or most certainly happened. You know, there are different terms for that. But uh, however, the stronger the case you have, the more of these things you have in favor of a particular thing or a particular person or a particular movement, 
the more historically certain you can be that a certain that a certain thing, a certain person, or a certain movement actually took place. So using these methodologies, what can we know about the historical Jesus? And the answer is <laughs> quite a bit. Uh, Gary Habermas presents what he calls the minimal facts approach. These he presents twelve facts that are generally agreed upon universally by the vast majority of historical scholarship. And this includes skeptics as well as evangelicals alike. And so what are these 12 facts? These 12 facts, again, held by universally uh, the the, uh, historical scholarship, include, number one, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Number two, he was buried, most likely in a private tomb. Number three, soon afterward, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, and despondent, having lost hope. Number four, Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after his interment, uh, after he raised uh, number five, Jesus. Uh, excuse me. The disciples had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. Number six, due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed, even building. Even being willing to die for this belief. Number seven, the proclamation of the resurrection took place very early at the beginning of the church history. No time for legendary development to take place. Number eight, the disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem, the same city where Jesus had been crucified and buried shortly before. Number nine, the gospel message centered on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Number 10. Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worshiping, and there's much more that we could say about that as well. Number 10. Uh, number 11. James, the brother of Jesus and former skeptic, was converted when he believed and saw the risen Jesus. Number 12. Just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus also known as Paul, became a Christian believer due to an experience that he believed to be an, ex- an, an appearance of the risen Jesus. And, and, we, and Gary Habermas, in one of his works, The Historical Jesus, talks about that even using early creeds and early apostolic testimony, we can find, or even that of the early church fathers, I should say, we can even note and add the facts that Jesus was born of Mary, who was a virgin and had a brother named James. We already mentioned that. Uh, was born in the city of Bethlehem, located about five miles from Jerusalem, and it is recorded that his birth could be verified by the records of Cyrenius, who was the first procurator of Judea. Later, Jesus was visited by Arabian Magi, who had first seen Herod. Uh, he was also the town of Nazareth. So that's quite a bit. So, friends... This holiday season, this Christmas season, there's no reason to give in to doubts and skepticism. The truth is, we have a strong case for the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's something. And with that being said, uh, we have a caller we want to bring on before uh, we get too late. Uh, we have a caller with the last four digits of 7456. Uh, again, uh, digit 7456. Uh, welcome to the broadcast. My brother, you should know the number by now. Absolutely. What you into, my friend Shane? Not much. I thought uh, I'd t- make a comment on your uh, 
about the uh, Dr. Jerry Falwell Jr.'s, uh, everybody misinterpreting what he said. And I'm on the key, I won't go as far into my rant as I did you heard yesterday on my show, and I do appreciate your commentary on it. But uh, Dr. Falwell's comments was totally tucked out of context. He's basically saying what our Second Amendment of the Constitution says, the right to defend ourselves. These spineless liberals need to learn to uh, learn to uh, back off and defend our constitutional rights as given to us by our Creator God Almighty, our unalienable rights that He gave gave us. Well, I, you know, I would agree with the fact that, uh, that there, there were many things that were taken out of context, and, and it's surprising to me that uh, the full message was not given. Uh, on on media in the media, and in fact, uh, the the portion where uh, the families of those who had lost loved ones uh, were offered for their kids, their kids were offered the kids of the families were offered free tuition at Liberty University so that they could get their degrees at Liberty essentially for free, and so that whole aspect wasn't. Wasn't wasn't given, and uh, neither was the the aspect of uh, of how uh, he and his wife both uh, cried hearing the testimonies of those who had witnessed such a thing, and and also it it wasn't acknowledged that this has been uh, something that Liberty has had for eight years. In fact, in in fact, it was implemented uh, right after the the shootings at Virginia Tech. So there was a lot of things that were taken out of context. And um, it just was simply avoided. Exactly. And, of course, mainstream media is not going to uh, show the love of Christian universities about, like, Liberty offering free tuition to the kids of the unfortunate uh, terrorist attack in California. They're not going to they're not going to show the love that Christians put out to people of all races. They want to keep everybody segregated, but that's a different subject for a different show at a different time. Well, you know, the thing about it is, and the thing that I have learned about, uh, I, I, I'm finishing out a couple of courses, actually finishing out my master's program at Liberty, and one course is uh, called the Contextualization of Theology, and I think we've talked about this before. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser has a book uh, called Everyday Theology, and in the first chapter of that, he warns or he tells everybody that everything out there has a message, whether it's a television show, whether it's a song that you hear on the radio, or even something you hear on a political show. There's always a message behind it, and it behooves us to to see, decipher what the message is, and to, and to gauge the bias that's given on that particular message. Exactly, and yes, we have talked about that, and I'm, and I'm actually going to get that book because you, it sounds like it's a very good book that he wrote that you discussed with me. But if I may, with your permission, I give out my website so people can read the article that I talked about this past week on yesterday's sure, show. With your, uh, you can catch, folks, you can catch my show at www.teamliberty1776, and it's called America at a Crossroads. I cover some of the same issues that me and Pastor Chilton just talked about here, 
give it a check out, folks. And thank y'all for y'all's support. Amen. Absolutely. So that is, uh, you can catch his website at Team Liberty Radio, uh, Team Liberty Radio 17, or Team Liberty 76. Is it Team Liberty 1776 or Team Liberty Radio 1776? Team Liberty 1776. At dot wordpress.com so be sure to check that out and uh, you can also hear the, the broadcast or the podcast at blogtalkradio.com uh, forward slash team liberty radio Shane good to have you on board with us today we're going to close out with uh, an additional commentary by Gary Habermas uh, found on the one minute apologist and he's going to go into a little more detail about the uh, historicity of the resurrection of Christ and what we can know about that and then we'll close out. Uh, so ble- God bless, and we will see you back here next week. This has been Pastor Brian Chilton. This is Redeeming Truth Radio. Let's go over to the One Minute Apologist. Our guest is Dr. Gary Habermas, one of the world's foremost experts on the resurrection. Dr. Habermas, it's good to have you with us. Thank you. Listen, I know that uh, a lot of people are skeptical about the resurrection, and you've dedicated your life to defending that. If you had literally a brief amount of time to be able to defend it, what would you say uh, defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ? You know, I I guess I would start with my method, and the method I use is I would say I would challenge a skeptic, and I would say I can take skeptical data that skeptical uh, Bible scholars. Now, we're, we're talking specialists because, you know, the skeptic's response is going to be, oh, I, I don't believe anything. But, I mean, if you talk to a, 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 someone who's as skeptical as they are, but they're well-trained in biblical studies, I will take their data, which they concede, because they all concede about the exact same thing. My argument is I can take the data they concede and show the resurrection happened from their basis. So it looks something like this. If the Bible's inspired... Jesus is raised from the dead. If the Bible is not inspired, but it's just reliable, Jesus is raised from the dead. And if it's neither inspired nor reliable, if the New Testament is not reliable, you can still get these facts and Jesus is raised from the dead. So the bottom line is, Jesus is raised from the dead no matter what your view of Scripture is, which I call a heads-I-win-tails-you-lose argument. Now, if I only could pick one argument for the resurrection, I'd say it's this one. Virtually every critical scholar writing, I mean, we're saying 98, 99% would concede something like this. The earliest followers of Jesus had experiences which they believed were appearances of the risen Jesus. They'll concede that. And here's my point. If they had real experiences, and if you cannot disprove it with the naturalistic theory, which which I will gamble they won't be able to do, but if you have real experiences and you can't explain them away, then what you have is the best explanation for that is that Jesus really appeared to them. That would be the one evidence. If I could only use one, I would take with it. So I would use I would use their method, their data, to show this one argument. And if they can't get away with it with the naturalistic evidence that are a hypothesis, then what you have is the actual resurrection appearances. Thank you very much. For more information on the resurrection, make sure you pick up his book, A Case for the Resurrection.